Hello and welcome to the Aluminium On Air podcast, brought to you in association with Aluminium International Today, the leading B2B magazine for the global aluminium manufacturing and processing industries. I'm Nadine Bloxham, editor of Aluminium International Today magazine and content director for the Future Aluminium Forum. Across this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking to industry experts and well-known faces about the latest technical developments, new projects, investments and general goings-on. This week, we go back in time as I speak to Professor Andrew Perchard, who is head of the Management Research Centre at the University of Wolverhampton Business School. He's written extensively about the aluminium industry, including in his 2012 book Aluminiumville, and is best positioned to offer some interesting insights into what lessons history can offer the sector at this time. Welcome, Andrew, to uh, what is now the seventh in this aluminium on air series of podcasts and um, I'm really looking forward to speaking about something a little bit different today because I know you're not technically as aluminium-y as, as some of our other guests but welcome all the same thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me on Nadine. No it's, it's fantastic and I know we've, we've worked quite a, quite a bit in the past and, and when I say kind of not aluminium-y obviously uh, it's that's more the technical side but in fact you are obviously the author of, uh, of a fantastic book which I'm hoping quite a few of our listeners have heard of already which was Aluminiumville and I believe you sent me a note to say it was back in 2012 that that was published. Yes that's right it seems yeah it seems like a lifetime ago now. <laughs> um, yeah so as you say right, you know my, my day job's actually within a university um, but I've worked with the aluminium industry for some years now Yeah. Uh, in one way or another. And so that's what I've, we were just having a quick chat off air because I know the uh, the last question that was asked by uh, Hilda Kalvig from Hydro uh, to, to obviously the next guest, which is you, uh, was what are your thoughts around working to differentiate between post and pre-consumed aluminium scrap from a CO2 or sustainability point of view? So I did feel a bit bad firing that one straight at you, but I, I hope you've got an answer for us. <laughs> It's an interesting question, Daisy. You know, it's, it's something I'll I'll try to do my best to to answer, um, and it's obviously something which others will have uh, will be able to offer a different, uh, be able to offer different insights into. Um, I think I'd probably like to look at it from from a a broader perspective, if I can, um, and that's and then come to the specifics later. Um, and I think that's that we need to consider CO2 emissions within the wider question of sustainability and then sustainability more holistically, say, which is to say we need to view this as part of the entire supply chain and the impacts of that on ecosystems and societies. Um, as you as you've pointed out, I'm a, I'm, I'm a historian of the aluminium industry and historically speaking, from the 1970s onwards, the, the industry was a leader in recycling. Um, as with many industries, that was driven partly by the necessities of earlier experiences such as, as war. Um, 
supply. And then in the early years of recycling, um, it was driven mostly by the economics of the industry and, and competition that had emerged um, chiefly from the plastics industry. Um, so, I mean, let's not evade the fact that while the industry was leading on this, um, it continued to have a significant um, uh, ecological and societal impact for, for good and ill. Um, one of the things that I, I point out in Aluminiumville, uh, if, it, if it's not too immodest to give it, to mention it. No, um, plug away. <laughs> is that managers in the industry, um, in places, in locations, in smelters, in Scotland and Norway, for example, were citing concerns and strong, strongly lobbying their boards um, about reducing the impact of pollution um, and its, uh, on local e ecosystems and livelihoods from as early as the 1920s. So it's, you know, that exists there. In more recent decades, obviously, the industry's quite clearly um, taken a more concerted um, and more significant strides to tackle impacts across the supply chain. Although my impression is that that seems to have been better in some cases than others. Um, that said, I think it's fair to say that aluminium continues to outperform many competitors in terms of recycling and durability, but there's still obviously plenty to be done on this front. I think um, there can be pressure, pressures at times like these for industry le leaders to fall back on time-honoured defensive positions and neglect core objectives such as social and um, environmental responsibility. Um, in my opinion, the aluminium industry should be seeking to place these at the core of what they do. It's not only the right thing to do, but good business sense. Um, and what's more, the industry has demonstrated throughout its history that it's able to technologically innovate to rise to such challenges. Um, I think, it, you know, possibly a point we can come back to later is it's crucial to emphasize that the ability to respond in, in times of crisis um, relies as much on organizational sustainability and cooperation across the industry. So returning to your original question, I think this needs to be looked at in a wide ranging fashion and to consider the impact of the supply chain as a whole and also changing consumption habits and tackling climate change and the social and ecological footprint of the industry must be an imperative. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that, as I say, that will reflect increasingly changing patterns of consumption as well as questions over as as the industry is already considering like a lot of industries over uh, the necessity of shortening supply chains yeah definitely i think this has been especially apparent uh, the last you know last few podcasts we've done have actually really focused on this this kind of issue and sustainability and and how it needs to remain at the forefront especially going forward and, and sort of coming out the other side of, of whatever this uh, the pandemic holds so um so yeah, completely good. I think you've done a very good job there of answering that as well, because I know I've put you quite <laughs> on the spot to begin with. So, 
thank you for that. Um, and, and good to have the, uh, the historical element as well, which is uh, what we'll be focusing on a bit more today. So, um, so obviously, you've, you know, we've spoken that you've been involved with the aluminium industry and, and your book back in 2012. Um, so what have you actually most enjoyed, would you say, about working with the aluminium industry so far? Or, or what do you kind of continue to enjoy? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, as as we've spoken about, I've, I've worked, like, looking back, I've worked with the industry in one way or another for since 2006. Um, so I've done things like speaking at the uh, UK Aluminium Federation's House of Lords lunch and yep. their business yeah. briefing as well. Obviously working with you on at Aluminium International today on a couple of pieces and um, I, yep. I find it really enjoyable and interesting um, as as a historian of business and work and as a management researcher um, aluminium is fascinating in, in terms of what it can tell us about internationalization of business, corporate governance, innovation and sustainability and the role ultimately the role of business and society. Um, I, I think the thing is a historian and, and I've you know, studied a number of sectors and worked with a number of sectors that I find particularly with aluminium is the fact that um, as an industry, I find it particularly interested in and receptive to learning from its past. Definitely. Yeah, I think and because we do have such a strong history or because there is such a strong history with aluminium and I know especially we've, together when we've worked on certain pieces, we've looked more at um, the aluminium industry just in the UK and and the kind of history that's there and it's it's fascinating so um, I'm just just thinking as well what I'll try and do is after, when we actually publish this podcast I'll make sure to find the uh, the previous articles you've written for us and uh, and make sure they're available online so everyone can can reread them if they haven't already um, but so so what would you say obviously that going back to your time that you've had you know working with aluminium and, and the sector and the people. What do you think the greatest challenges then that this kind of new crisis will present to the industry? I know this has been a bit of a topic we've touched on a, over a few podcasts, just to get a general overview. Yeah, um, obviously it's the, the pressing thing on everyone's mind. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it's, uh, we're all struggling with this at, you know, at, at individual levels and, and, and as organisations um, because of the highly unusual nature of, of, of the current crisis. Um, I, you know, obviously the, the industries face considerable um, risk and crucially, I think, in the last few years, uncertainty um, with, you know, obviously COVID's the the most globally challenging for the UK industry. Um, Britain's exit from the European Union, Brexit, is, which is looming, is clearly a significant challenge, um, not least because of the lack of clarity on what that will look like. Um, and to, to, I think, to highlight again the, the, the significance of that, you know, and we need to look at some of the, the, the statistics on on, on uh, trade with Europe, you know, um, aluminium's, UK aluminium's exports to EU countries currently account for 54% of 
of the industry's total exports and around 60% of the, the value of those. Um, the UK and EU aluminium industries are obviously, and their supply chains are closely interlinked. interlinked. Um, they have long-standing networks and shared knowledge, which have generated gener um, decades worth of valuable R&D. Besides which, you know, when we talk, in, um, you know, the, the, the UK, the EU market is clearly a high value market for UK aluminium exports. Um, yeah. Clearly, globally, there's, there have been other pressures in terms of tensions over tariffs with the US, China, EU and Japan. And, um, and those have given grave cause con for concern, as has overcapacity in the Chinese industry. Um, I'd say the first two, COVID and Brexit, are, are more difficult to contend with than the latter because of the uncertainty, um, whereas tensions over tariffs and prices um, are a more calculable risk and something the industry's historically had to, to deal with. Um, however, the, you know, what I would say is that history does show us that the industry has contended with challenges um, throughout that, throughout time uh, and you know there's plentiful examples of how it's responded to that certainly like you say the last few years especially have, uh, have brought those those challenges obviously brexit and uh, and covid more recently so if there's any elements we can take from from history and from from learnings then uh, then yeah we definitely need to be doing that now so what kind of lessons do you think then that history like history can actually offer the industry maybe for this present time not necessarily for this the current pandemic but for just going forward as we are yeah so well i, I can i can provide some examples and then we could have a, a chat about what, what the implications of those are um i mean i think there are some key pointers within there um there's always a risk in drawing, as you as you allude to, direct comparisons with the past, where economic and political structures were different. But if I just, you know, even take us back uh, to just over a century ago in 1919, the world was reeling, obviously, from the First World War and the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic influenza. Yeah. Um, which claimed between 35 and 72 million lives together you know the first world war and and the spanish flu and then as now um despite some historical uh, differences obviously there was no world health organization there and medical science was not as advanced but there were significant variations in the impact of the influenza regionally due to a variety of factors, for example, government responses. I'm not a historian of medicine or public health, so I'm, I'm not going to speak to that aspect here. Um, economically, of course, um, as well as socially, both the war and the influenza epidemic, which had run since 1918, had significant repercussions. Um, the war um, and peace negotiations 
um, and events such as the Russian Revolution of October 1917 had totally changed geopolitics. Um, so the relatively useful aluminium industry, and let's remember that the modern aluminium industry at the end of at that time in 1919 was just over 30 years old um, and it, so it faced considerable risks but also opportunities on the one hand the war had uh, demonstrated how versatile the metal was and um, something that would then be reflected more uh, in a more wholesome manner in the expansion of civilian uses of the metal from kitchenware to transport and and a lot else. It had gone from being essentially a luxury metal to gain mass appeal. Um, and that was important because the industry had struggled for domestic markets before the war in a number of, in a lot of the countries um, that had well, you know, fairly well established aluminium industries. And it faced enormous. Op uh, and after the war, it faced enormous opportunities for expansion. Um, you know, with that, on the other hand, with that mass appeal came the risk of the metal being viewed as somehow inferior and ersatz material. Um, the French and US aluminium industries, to give you an example, um, in particular were uh, responded with ingenuity and in design and marketing. And alongside sort of prevailing uh, fashions and innovations um, and grand publicly funded infrastructure projects. So, for example, in the, the 1920s in Britain, the creation of the national grid created so massive growth in markets and elevated aluminium to a, it also gave it as, as a symbol of modernity, if you like. Um, so the the war had played a sort of midwife to technical and and organizational innovations as well um, and you know in terms of responding to the crisis of war in germany for example there was no aluminium industry in terms of uh, upstream production before the first world war um, it had relied on the swiss industry for supplies of ingot um, and with those cut off, the wartime government had created a state corporation. Um, it had also been cut off from supplies of alumina, so it had to develop synthetic chemical processes to, to make up for that. Wow. Um, so, you know, I guess what you know, to say there is that the industry was on the cusp of enormous opportunities. Um, and when markets rallied again in 1923, that saw the aluminium industries, um, uh, well, the demand for the product double. Um, however, it, it, you know, it was also confronted by risks. In Britain, for example, uh, the war had exposed the limitations of the domestic industry. And they'd midway through the war, um, the, Britain was very reliant on Canadian ingot. Um, at the end of, of the war as well, a number of governments um, dumped large stockpiles of aluminium scrap on, on markets, which created a real crisis for the industry. Um, as for 
other industries that war had created a real impact in terms of infrastructure, the loss, for example, of um, merchant shipping, um, which impacted on supply chains. So against that background, uh, what's perhaps interesting is, uh, and you know, something that hopefully we can pick up in due course is the um, is cooperation um, and the British, the leaders of the British and the French and the and, and US firms met um, on the peripheries of the, the peace treaty and the, the peace negotiations in Versailles um, to discuss the future of the industry. In part, uh, that was uh, a fairly ruthless attempt to take over central European markets, but one of the more um, one of the more enduring legacies of that was the create was was cooperation in the form of um, various associations. Now, uh, you know the the most enduring of those uh, was uh, the Aluminium Association, which was started in 1926, um, and while elements of what that did such as regulating uh, sales and, uh, and, and, and outputs would raise eyebrows today in terms of it being defined as a cartel. It's, yeah. it's functions, <laughs> clearly. It, it functions, you know, what it did in terms of regulating quality and collectively coordinating marketing and R&D and transport were organisational innovations that did much to secure a sustainable future for the industry um, that regrettably came to an end with the uh, with as, as a result of nazi rearmament in the late 30s but it, which brings us on to another point in terms of the history which is about how different uh, uh, political environments and changes um, saw different outcomes for the industry and I guess the lesson there is is in terms of looking at um, the very different contexts in which companies are operating and, and 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 how that might determine their future. I mean, for example, in the U.S. in during the Second World War, um, uh, the political impetus for expanding production and and connections also led to benefits for two new entrants to the industry, Reynolds Metals and Kaiser Aluminium, um, and also disadvantaged Alcor, of course, that's all changed around. Yeah. Um, whereas in Britain, um, uh, the legacy of, of wars and, and the, then the chief British company's narrow social selection of its board of directors, led to the company being far too close to government and which had disastrous effects on the long-term long -term sustainability of the company. So it's just a, a few selective examples, but what I think they demonstrate is that, that there are insights and value that history can offer for the industry and, and for those working in it uh, as it confronts significant uncertainty and risk as well as some opportunities. Of course, and it and it does highlight. I know, obviously, that some of the examples you mentioned there aren't 
necessarily along any kind of similar line to you know today obviously the world wars and and things like that but it does show there are elements where history does repeat itself and you know the challenges that um industries face and the way they react to them obviously examples with this uh this pandemic kind of show different products and and the way the aluminium industry has had to adapt to you know encourage certain products so you know packaging for medical supplies or food supplies and and those kind of ways there's there's always elements that can be adjusted and, and like we say adapted to to kind of work to either help in a situation or, or set the standard for moving forward um so i yeah i find it fascinating and i think um, i'm hoping everyone else listening will as well thanks <laughs> i mean we've uh, kind of tying up slightly just because uh because we're running out of time and these things always seem to go a lot quicker than than i think they're going to go but um <laughs> if you were just to give a couple of key points then of how you'd kind of boil down these the, the way the history can offer you know a, a kind of well, offer the industry and what the what the what history itself can offer the industry what would these kind of points look like if you had to just throw some at us Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks, Nadine. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, as you say, there's clearly distinctions that we have to draw. But I think there are, you know, and I've long thought this. There are, um, there's certainly some valuable examples, really rich examples from aluminium that that can be taken from this, especially within the current uh, climate. The first of these, I guess, would. I'd probably say would be the importance um, and it's not you know not just aluminium but other industries illustrating this of building sustainable and resilient organizations um, and that's um, and I, I probably would say this as a as a, as a historian who works in a, a business school but that's as important as technological and marketing innovations investing in the collective knowledge within the industry and in the workforces is as important as meeting the challenges of say industry 4.0 um i think related to that leadership um and an organizational culture within the firm that listens and learns from its employees uh is crucial to building agile resilient and sustainable businesses um I'll give you an example of that. Um, so the US firm Reynolds Metals exemplified that. Um, it, it built its its business chiefly from its connections with government, but the firm's founder had real acumen in terms of identifying talented staff who helped to make Reynolds one of the most globally innovative firms of its day, um, leading uh, the way in areas such as recycling, um, particularly around the development of the beverage can. But, you know, and the, the loyalty of those staff was cemented by the founder, Richard Reynolds, um, and his belief in them and personable style. Uh, in contrast, British Aluminium, who I mentioned earlier, their selection of aloof, narrow, socially elite directors um, <laughs> led to them making some catastrophic strategic decisions, uh, which ultimately resulted in their demise. Um, yeah. Another insight, I guess, that you know, I, I alluded to before is that 
the industry's been sustain, sustained at times of crisis by transnational, national and local collaborations. Um, um, those have helped it to um, innovate in supply chains, marketing and R&D. Um, and in, in light of global challenges, above all, climate change um, and, and, and also the opportunities for aluminium and recycling and the low carbon economy, this seems to me as an imperative as ever. I mean, uh, one of your recent um, episodes, it was a few episodes back, I think, um, uh, underlined the importance of transnational collaboration within the industry. Um, following the recent uh, attack on hydro, on hydro. Um, and you, you had a former colleague of mine, uh, Alexis Garcia-Perez on cybersecurity yeah. talking about that. So I think that's a good recent example of, of the importance of, of collaboration across the industry. Yeah, definitely. Guess, Colla well, collaboration, yeah, as you say, collaboration is something that, again, a lot of our podcasts seem to have, have touched on, which is really good to see. All right. And yeah. yeah, no, but but hoping that it kind of can affect different elements of the sector as well, and and how we can move forward together. Um, I, I do you know I I would love to keep talking about this because I I can get engrossed in this so much, but I know our time is kind of running out, so I do, I want to make sure we get in. A, I'm hoping you've got a very I don't know quite a topical and and tough question to aim at our next guest that we can that we can fire at, and uh, and what I'll make sure to do is uh, obviously speaking offline we can we can get some more of your thoughts down and uh, and potentially look at putting them up on a you know as a feature on, on the website so people can find out a bit more information obviously if that's okay with you yes of course <laughs> thank you uh, so what, what yeah what what would you kind of fire at, at the next guest will it has it got a historical element or, or are you what are you asking them well yeah no <laughs> um I, I suppose I, I would be interested to hear, and this will obviously depend on who your, your next guest is, but uh, on how their organisation is, is planning for the future in terms of, you know, whether it's looking as well to the past as well as the present and, and the future in terms of um, considering how that the, the farm or, or the organization's um, strategy might be um, devised, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that does make And that's actually quite interesting because uh, at the back of my head, I, I know who our next guest is. So I think actually it will take quite an interesting turn. Um, so yeah, that's a really good question <laughs> to, to have. Thank you. Um, yeah, sorry again, obviously, to kind of... Uh, no, no, no. Conversation <laughs> slightly short, but I, I, yeah, it's been fascinating. And um, I know, like I say, I'll try and get together some of the previous articles we've you know we've worked on for aluminium international in the past and uh, and get those back up on the on the website so they're, they're somewhere that everybody can find them and uh, and reread if they haven't already well thanks to you nadine i really i really enjoyed this and uh yeah thanks for for letting me ra ramble on <laughs> no not at all not at all thank you so much andrew thank you Thank you for listening to this Aluminium On Air podcast. If you'd like any more information on any of the topics discussed in this episode, 
Or if you'd like to download any of the articles written by Professor Andrew Perchart exclusively for Aluminium International Today, then please visit www.aluminiumtoday.com and click on the features link.